one of the biggest things about becoming partner early on is that you have to continue to evolve your practice. When I found out that they were considering me for partner, it was earlier than I had thought, which was an incredible honor. And the main thing that they stressed to me, which is why I was considered, was that they saw a business and a thought plan going forward. I wasn't being reactive. I was seeking out new opportunities and new certifications and new nuances in my practice area. So constantly evolving. You have to continue to move with the times. You have to continue to look for opportunities. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer who is tirelessly and compassionately dedicating her practice to representing clients navigating the challenges of divorce. She is a partner at the New Jersey law firm Linda Berry, McCormick, Estabrook, and Cooper, and has won various awards for her work, including Best Lawyers for Families by New Jersey Family Magazine, Rising Star Corporate Partner by the United Way of Greater Union County, and has been named Super Lawyer five years in a row. This woman is a force, and I can't wait for you to hear about the nuanced and thoughtful way she approaches her practice. Welcome our next lawyer who leads, Nicole Kobus. Nicole, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. I want to actually dive right in because you have a really fascinating journey to the law. Being a lawyer is actually a second career for you, right? It is. So I actually went to college in Washington, D.C., graduated with an undergraduate degree in marketing and public relations, came back to New Jersey, and I worked for two and a half years doing marketing and PR in the fashion world. Got to plan fashion week, got to hang out with a lot of celebrities, meet really cool people. And then one day I was sitting in a meeting and I just was like, this is not for me. I need to do more. I want to help people. And I remember I got on the train back home that day and my now husband, boyfriend at the time, picked me up from the train station. I said, I'm going to study for my LSAT. And he said, okay, did you have a bad day of work? What happened? I said, no, it's not a bad day. It's just, you know, I need to do this. And I took LSAT lessons at night because no one at work knew that I was doing this, studied, took them, got into law school, and then I gave my notice and started law school two and a half years later and just completely switched career paths and haven't looked back. What made you decide, like, no, this is not enough for me? I would be sitting in these meetings with very high-powered individuals, both in the United States and abroad, and everyone was so passionate about what they were doing. And I was going through the motions in a way. I was doing a really good job at what I was supposed to be doing, but I thought to myself, I can't imagine doing this for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And if I don't do it now, when am I going to really make the switch and pivot and do something else? So why law? It was always something in the back of my head. If you looked at my transcript from undergrad, I have a lot of law classes. So it's always been an underlying interest of mine. After going to college for four years and focusing so strongly on public relations and marketing, I knew going right to law school and being in school for another three years was not right for me at that time. I was in Washington, D.C. I wanted to go back to New Jersey and be with my family. So the timing of it didn't feel right, and I had to do it in my own way. So I've heard you say before that you fell in love with family law and then you enrolled in law school. So what is it about family law practice specifically that made you want to go to that? I wanted to work with people and I wanted to help people. When I was in my first year of law school, 
I interned for a judge who was doing a domestic violence calendar at the time. And he did a little bit of divorce here and there when they needed him to help out. And I loved it. I also interned for another judge who did more larger civil cases, complex injury cases, complex employment cases. And he would always say to me, I'm going to put you on a really interesting case. I think you're going to love it. And I would always say, oh, you know, that was cool. But I loved working for the other judge and doing things for him. And I got lucky that he gave me the opportunity to stay on as his intern during my second year of law school, helping out with the divorce calendar that then he had transitioned onto. So I got a lot of experience early on and just really found my niche and just felt like this was where I wanted to be. And then ultimately, after law school, I clerked for the head of the family division in Union County, and her docket was completely divorce related and pre and post divorce issues. And my clerkship, I say it time and time again, was the best year of my career. I wish I could have been a law clerk forever because I just learned so much. I got to have so many cool experiences. So it was just something that I knew was the area I needed to go into. Was there an inclination as to who you wanted to represent or was it like across the board, regardless of which parent it was? Good question. So there are people that do focus their practices on male, female, uh, husband, wives, moms, dads. To me, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm representing the individual. There's definitely clients that have come my way where I know we're going to be like oil and water and this is not going to work. And I'm not your friend, but it's someone that you need to jive with. And I'm not going to jive with everyone just like everyone's going to jive with me. And that's okay. I'm lucky that I have partners here that, you know, if I feel that maybe I'm not the best fit, there's someone else and vice versa. But it's a very personal decision picking an attorney. You're dealing with the most important things in someone's lives, their children and their families. So it's definitely I look more for the personality versus necessarily like their interests and like what they're after. Absolutely. And on the note of this being such a difficult time in someone's life. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach not only the relationship with the client, but the relationship with yourself? Like these are really high stakes, high emotion cases. How do you deal with that? It helps having more experience under your belt. At my first few years, I'd bring a lot of it home with me and really had a hard time turning it off. It's definitely a learned skill. There's nothing that anyone could teach you how to do. You need to figure out what works best for you because there are clients that, you know, you feel awful for them or you might have lost emotion in court and you're just beating yourself up. Should I have said this? Should I not have said this? It's very, very difficult. And what I try to at least do is I want anyone that's coming into my office to feel that they've been hurt. I want them to feel like they had their opportunity to speak. And then I understood where they were coming from. And then respectfully, if I have to disagree, say, well, you know, I'm not your friend. You're paying me for my professional advice. And while maybe on a personal level, I might agree with things that you're saying, the law, unfortunately, is not on your side. But I feel that my clients, their expectations are managed early on. I try to be as efficient as possible because at the end of the day, they have to pay my bill out of whatever income, you know, and assets that they have left over. But I also just want them to know that I am there for them and I am looking out for their best interest, whether or not at the end of whatever they're going to say, I'm going to agree or disagree with them. Sounds like you're really creating this psychological safe space for your clients where they feel heard, but they're also able to take the expertise that you're giving them, even if it's contrary and feel very confident in that decision. Absolutely. When people come into my office, it's a lot of times the first time that they're even dealing with a divorce, know anything about a divorce. You know, they've, of course, read their Google articles. They've talked to their friends and their parents, and they think that, you know, they have an idea of what's going to happen. But sometimes they also just need 
that space to vent. Just, I had a really bad day. I had this interaction with my co-parent and this is what happened. What do I do? And they're not necessarily looking for me to do anything about it. They're just frustrated. So sometimes, you know, I'm just that ear, that safe space that I'm understanding what's going on. I'm going to make the best decisions based on the cards that have been dealt. You actually wrote a really powerful article called The Challenge of Being a Sympathetic Divorce Lawyer. And I found this piece to actually be really insightful because you brought such a level of self-awareness to this piece. And I want to dive there a little bit since we're talking about interactions with clients. You discussed that when you first started practicing, you were also recently married and you discussed this concept of being a relatable advocate. I wrote in that article and I remember it clear as day that I would spin my engagement ring around because I just felt bad being like, oh, look, here's my sparkly new ring. I'm so happy. And, you know, across the table is someone who's crumbling at the seams. It's a balancing act for sure. And something that, again, with experience just comes more confidence and belief that you know what you're doing and to just be open and listen. You know, we don't listen enough. Yes, we all hear things that are happening around us, but the actual skill of opening the ears, putting down the phone and actually listening is something that we all can work on and really in this kind of industry becomes invaluable, especially with the pandemic. I've gotten to know my clients on a much deeper level. It's the whole silver lining of the pandemic, right? My client meetings are now on Zoom, so it's much easier instead of exchanging emails with a client, say, hey, let's hop on the quick 15-minute Zoom call as opposed to you having to take a day off, come into my office to meet with me. So I've gotten to see my clients, quote-unquote, face-to-face, much more often, I've gotten to see their houses. I've gotten to see their kids in the background when I'm like introduced as, oh, this is my friend, Nicole. I'm like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. It's definitely led to a much deeper attorney-client relationship than I think prior to the pandemic. That's so interesting. I never even thought about that. I was going to ask you a little bit about how the pandemic has affected your practice and affected the whole landscape of divorce. But this specific slice of it is so interesting that you actually have deepened your relationships because the ability to have more technological access than before allows you to connect in that way. Do you ever see that going back? So I think it's a generational thing and I think it's definitely a personality thing. There's plenty of attorneys in my office that clients are coming in to meet with them in person. For me, I think it just makes much more sense to be on Zoom because of my personality and the way I'm able to interact with my clients. I don't lose anything from not physically being able to shake their hands, even though it's, are we shaking hands again? I don't think that's coming back. Either. I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's coming back. Um, so I think that as the younger generations come up through the ranks, I think we will be embracing more and more technology. And I think the legal profession in general had a lot of catching up to do with technology. And this probably forced some of the issues and made them speed up to this century you know, a lot faster. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also tell people now after doing something one way for two years successfully, why it can't continue in that way. Any other notable things that you've seen the pandemic change in your practice? So it's definitely made divorce on a lot of instances harder because of the finances. And so for a while at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of cases stalled because rental offices were closed no one was really showing houses or able to go into houses to sell houses or buy houses. So that was certainly an issue. Um, now that the cases are coming down, vaccinations are much more readily available as are treatments. Things are returning a little more to normal. 
in terms of the rate at which cases are moving and the rate at which cases are coming in. But there's still also the considerations of quarantining and when you have young kids that aren't vaccination eligible yet and how you're going to manage that with work travel schedules. And some people are back in the office sometimes, some are not. It's definitely added little wrinkles along the way that I think we're all going to have to continue to deal with. You know, COVID's not going they're just going to be managed better. And we all just have to adjust to the way the cases are. No one has a crystal ball. You just have to be able to react as best as you can because the tools that you have. Yeah, I feel like so many different law practices have had to deal with on some level de novo type issues because of the pandemic. Um, but particularly when it comes to parenting and thinking about parents that have two different viewpoints on the pandemic and how they want their children to be uh, raised when they separate, that must have been really difficult to navigate from like a legal perspective. A lot of it was new. A lot of it was very case sensitive. So in particular, one of the biggest issues was child vaccination. What do you do if one parent says, I want my kids signed up for the first appointment and the other parent's like, ah, I want to wait a few months. I'm not sure about this. I want to see how things go. Now, what do you do? And granted, some of these issues would have still happened in an intact family, too. You don't always see eye to eye with your spouse or your co-parent and you have to work through those issues. And that's also what I try to impress upon my clients is that there are certain issues that you would have had to deal with even if you stayed together with this person. There are things that you're not going to see eye to eye on and like you have to come to a resolution. The court is available to parents that are no longer together or couples that are divorcing. And that's great. But no one is going to know you and your family and your children the way that the two of you do. So I really try to empower my clients to try to think about that so that they're still in control somewhat of the decisions that are being made. Because once you leave it into a judge's hands, you're leaving it to a stranger. And listen, they're going to read whatever is submitted. They're going to look to experts if they don't know what to do. And they are going to do the best that they can to make the decision that they feel is appropriate. But who's to say that decision it ends up being what works for you and your family and then you're stuck with it. We also had that issue with quarantining at the beginning too, in particular healthcare professionals. Do you deprive a healthcare professional who's an ER doctor, an ER nurse, time with their child? Because there is a very long period of time where it was very scary how you even got COVID. So do you say, no, you can't see your parent because we're concerned about your health and safety? Or they're mitigating factors and then you bring COVID into another person's household. It was a colossal mess for a while of trying to figure out what makes sense. And that's why I try to at least tell my clients, what would you have done if you guys were together? Would you have kicked your wife out? Would she be sleeping in a hotel? Would you allow her to come into the house? Like it's the same kind of risk reward that you need to weigh what makes sense for your family. I actually think that this is something that could be taken into a lot of different practice areas when there is a, let's say, a dissolution of a partnership or a dissolution of, you know, breaking up of two entities. Like this idea, this concept of really looking at an issue or a disagreement and saying, how would you have dealt with this if you were still together? At the end of all of this, especially if you have a child. So I'm talking about more of a family, whether they're married or not, and they have a child to come right? If you know the child, you come and yes, it's very easy to say you're going to divide up the economics. However, they're going to divide up. and You never have to speak to this person. That's fine. But the people that have children in common, you're stuck with them. Whether your child is eight months old or 18 years old or 28 years old, there are still going to be milestones in this child's life that you need to be a part of together. And there's decisions that you're going to have to make together. And when people get married, you could fall in love with like the yin to your yang, right? Where you're not going to see eye to eye on anything, but for one reason or another, it works. 
just because the romantic part of your relationship no longer works doesn't mean that you still can't come to another kind of level of your relationship where you can be effective co-parents. How does this type of collaboration relate back to you and opposing counsel? It's interesting because there's definitely attorneys that when they get into a case, I'm like, okay, this is how this case is going to go. And you prep your client for exactly what it is. You know, we're a very small community of lawyers. So chances are, if I haven't worked with them directly, I know someone who has. And, you know, your reputation in this industry means everything. And so it's definitely frustrating when you get an attorney on the other side of the case who you know, is in it for the wrong reasons and practices a way that you maybe don't believe in and you know is not going to mesh well with you. But when you have a good adversary, while yes, you still have to advocate for your client's position, it makes a case just so much better for everyone. And that's what I think clients lose sight of because they're like, no, I want you to yell. I want you to scream. I want you to write nasty letters. I'm like, what is that going to do for us? That's not going to do anything for us. You want me to try to cut through the weeds as quickly and efficiently as possible and get you to the other side of the trees. Like that is my job. And that's why I'm really trying to tailor my practice more towards mediation and collaboration and collaborative law work and parent coordination work, where those are the skills that you use to really help people. So talk to me about how you're tailoring your practice. Talk to me about how one takes their current practice and starts to incorporate and build upon these other types of skills. So about five years ago, I did training to become a certified family and divorce mediator. It was many hours of training. I had to then shadow a mentor and watch their mediations. And that training to me was truly invaluable and something that I think should be required of all family law attorneys, frankly. And yes, I understand the court needs to be there in the event that a decision can't be reached. But I also think on the other hand, the courts are too available to emotionally charge litigants who just want to fight. So a good mediator to me is the best thing that you could have in a case. So once I did my certification, I also was able to get on the state's approved list for mediators that can be appointed by the court, which has opened the door to a lot of really cool opportunities and unique cases and fulfilling opportunities. Because if you're able to help two people coming into a case that you don't think could even agree that the sky is blue and somehow you get them to an agreement at the end of the day, to me, there's nothing more fulfilling than that. During the pandemic, I got trained as a collaborative divorce attorney, and that's a whole other area of practice where you agree not to use the court system at all. In fact, if one of you tries to use the court system, then every professional in the case has to be fired. There's an agreement that you enter into. So it's a little more extreme. And a lot of people don't necessarily agree with it because they're like, I'm choosing my attorney because I want to choose my attorney. I don't want them to be fired at the end of the day, but it keeps everyone having some skin in the game. But it's the same thing. You're working for the collective whole while still being able to advocate for your clients best interests and like their wants and wishes at the end of the case. So your practice is great. You're a partner at a firm. What motivates you to do these things? Because I went into this business to help people. And when I saw what litigation can do to a family and forget about the money aspects of how much litigation costs, but the emotional toll that it takes not only on the spouses and the litigants, but also the children who didn't ask to be a part of this. I just knew there had to be a better way. And when I started learning more, I found out, in my opinion, what that better way is. And it's through mediation and negotiation. That's really how you help people through the hardest time in their life. It speaks volumes to 
say, you know what, I have this practice, but I see these other areas in which I can improve not only my own professional development, but really help create a better experience for clients that are willing to entertain these other options. It really does speak volumes that you take the extra steps to do this professional development. If there were other people that were thinking about doing those things, what would you recommend as far as trainings? I would definitely recommend whatever your local state bar association is to definitely take advantage of whatever CLEs they have for mediation training, because you're going to learn from very experienced mediators. At the training that I did, there were retired judges that spoke. There were accounting professionals that spoke. There were therapists that spoke. So you really learn it from a different angle than what you're used to in litigation. I'd also recommend networking. Look up attorneys that do a lot of this kind of work. You have to pay it forward. And the more senior attorneys are happy to get a phone call from a junior attorney saying, any chance that you have a case that I could chat? And yeah, sure, they have to get waivers from the clients and things like that. But in my experience, I've been very lucky to have a lot of really great mentors which has really helped to have those lifelines to call when you don't know how to handle a situation or you need someone's second opinion on the read of a case. And also just to get your name out there, too, that you're interested in doing this kind of work. Let's talk about mentorship for a second. How did you get your great mentors? I think I've just been really lucky. I hate to say it. Some of my biggest cheerleaders, when I worked in the fashion industry, I'm still in contact with my two bosses that I worked there who've always been, once I gave my notice, beyond incredibly supportive. The judges that I interned for were just amazing and allowed me to ask whatever questions I wanted. The judge that I clerked for in particular, she is actually now my partner at the firm, which is amazing that I get to work with her now every day. The year that I was able to be with her, I learned more than I think I have in probably the last 10 years of practice. She rolled up her sleeves. She dug in. She taught me so much. She would ask me questions and then make sure I had to explain it back to her. So I really understood what she was trying to tell me. If she knew that there was a really interesting case happening in another courtroom, she said, don't work for me today. Go sit and go watch. This is going to be your once in a lifetime opportunity to do these things. And then straight from my clerkship, um, actually while I was clerking, really, I met an attorney who ended up recruiting me to my firm now, who I've worked with for the last decade. He gave me the confidence to practice, gave me the space to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, showed me that he's never been too busy to answer a question I had. He's always said, ask me the same question 10 times, but don't just yes me to death. Make sure you really understand what I'm saying. Being able to work with him and learn from him has really been just truly amazing. And I'm just very fortunate that I've fallen into these different people and been able to look up to them and learn from them. But at the same token, like when junior attorneys come into our office, I'm always the first one that volunteers to be their mentor because you want to pay it back to them because that's what people did for you. You have to learn somewhere. We have to support one another. It seems to me before you went to law school as well as while you were in law school, you created these relationships, but then you maintained them afterwards. Talk to me about how you maintain these relationships that then became mentorships afterwards. It is definitely challenging just because, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day in between work and being a mom. You've got your plate filled as is, but sometimes it doesn't have to be these grandiose gestures. It's the checking in, staying in touch, sending out holiday cards, remembering birthdays, um, seeing like an interesting article that reminds you of something funny that, you know, you might have shared and you shoot off a two line email, just like check this out, thought of you, remember that case, 
when we saw X, Y, and Z. It's just the trying to have as many touch bases as frequently as possible, just to let people know that you're thinking about them. That's great advice. I also want to talk, because you're a partner now at the firm, I want to talk a little bit about that partner track. Talk to me about that journey. And also, what do you think are some of the things that really helped you become partner at the firm? So our firm is more of a mid-sized firm. So partner track is not as rigid and structured as like the larger firms where you have to do A, B, and C, one, two, and three, and then you're considered. So when I found out that they were considering me for partner, it was earlier than I had thought, which was an incredible honor. And you have to put together a presentation in front of all the shareholders and partners as to why you should be partner. And these are people that at that point I've worked with for years and years. And I was terrified. The main thing that they stressed to me, which is why I was considered, was that they saw a business plan and a thought plan going forward. I wasn't being reactive. I was seeking out new opportunities and new certifications and new nuances in my practice area. So for example, as I'm now getting um, my training to be a paracoordinator, which is like more up and coming area of the law, I'm also doing more guardian at light and guardianship work. So constantly evolving. And that I think was one of the biggest things about becoming partner early on is that you have to continue to evolve your practice. You have to continue to move with the times. You have to continue to look for opportunities. Opportunities are not just going to necessarily fall on your desk every day of the week. You have to continue to seek out. This is a client service business. And especially with family law matters, they're not like institutional corporate clients where you get three corporate clients in your entire career and they're just going to keep feeding you work. A lot of times my clients are one and done and you have to put your best foot forward because your best referral sources are going to be your former clients. There's nothing more gratifying than getting a phone call from a new client. I said, oh, you know, how did you find my name? They're like, oh, so-and-so loved you. And I'm like, oh my God, I haven't thought about this client in years. And then, like I was just saying about touch points, that would be an email that I'd say, oh, thanks so much for sending your friend. Like, how are you? How are your kids? And it's nice even when I get holiday cards. I get holiday cards a lot of times from my former clients and I watch their kids grow up. It's just... That's amazing. It's the client relationships though, especially partner track. Um, once you're a partner and maintaining those relationships for the firm are really key. So what I hear you saying is that you have to not only think about the practice, which is the most important, advocating for your client, making sure you get the best outcome that you can for them. But in addition to that, ensuring that you maintain those relationships, that you're also considering how to continue to expand your ability to reach new relationships through these various other trainings and certifications. And then in addition to that, ensuring that you're giving them the best experience necessary so that those referrals also continue to come in. Absolutely. There's so many facets to this business. You know, really law school needs to be revamped in a lot of ways because these are things that they don't even forget about teaching. They don't even talk about. There are no lessons about the business of law and, you know, how to manage clients and things like that. Yes, you learn every Supreme Court case and you learn com law and, you know, you do all those things. And that's great and all probably for like this teeny tiny subsect of the population where that's the area of law that they go into. But for the rest of us, you walk out of law school and you really don't know how to be a lawyer. And it's definitely a skill that you need to be at least shown at first. And then what you do with those skills is really up to you. I interview so many different people on this podcast, and one of the most common things that I hear is that law school needs to be revamped um, and that lawyers are not ready. So you are not alone in this idea, and I think a lot of people are starting to really think very deeply about what that would look like. So my question to you is, 
do you think that this kind of stuff can be learned in a classroom or do you think that this has to be done in a different way, like a clinic or an internship type of situation? I think a clinic and an internship is going to be much more useful. It's going to be more hands-on. It's going to be less cookie cutter because this career is not cookie cutter. You know, every case, even though you think that the facts are exactly the same, can take on a completely different life of their own. But I think though, what needs to be taught in law school is the fact that it's a business. And at the end of the day, if you build 100 hours out of five and you are only able to collect on 50 hours, that's as if you worked 50 hours. That is often lost in a lot of practices. And it's certainly not something that I was ever taught lost. The mechanics of running the business and how you deal with clients that want you to do more, but you know you don't need to do more and how you balance them feeling maybe you're not representing them adequately, but at the same time, knowing that you know what you're doing and that you're going to be able to get them the result that they need. I think especially early on when you're a new attorney, you don't have all, like you said, all the experience under your belt. It's very difficult to balance the idea that I have to do what I know is right and I have to do what I've been shown is the best way to go about these cases but also ensuring that your relationship with the client, them feeling heard, all of those things are balanced as well. And I think that's a very difficult thing to encounter very early on in your career. What is a piece of advice that you would give to a new attorney coming in saying, hey, Nicole, I'm really overwhelmed. I really just need help understanding how to balance this. What would you say to them? I would say seek out opportunities, ask questions, and find something that's actually going to go to bat for you and defend you. Early on in my career, when clients would second guess what I would say, they would respond to my email and they would copy my partner on it, looking for him to essentially go against me or say something else. And he would back me 100%. And just knowing that you had someone to fall back on as the person who would show you the ropes but also not throw you under the bus is really important. It's great advice. So I'm going to do a little rapid fire for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. So what does leadership in the law mean to you? Leading by example. If you're not going to walk the walk, you shouldn't be talking the talk. If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things I would love to improve. I think there should be some way and somehow there be oversight on the way attorneys practice. There are a lot of people, especially in family law in particular, that are not in it for the right reasons. And because of that, your client, my client, kind of gets taken along for the ride. It comes with that a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of emotion. It just shouldn't be allowed. I don't know how you set up a checks and balances system to prevent that. But when that happens, it gets very frustrating on both me and my client that There's only so much within my power that I can do, and there's typically nothing I can do to prevent it. The system allows it. What are the right reasons or not the right reasons? You shouldn't be in family law for money. It is very easy. You can take a file and you can churn it and you can bill it to the nth degree. And if you have a client who has very deep pockets, you'll get paid. The courts are set up and designed that they will make sure that attorneys get paid. But that's not the reason to be in this profession. You are playing with people's hearts. You're playing with people's wallets. You're playing with people's children. And you should be doing everything in your power to make the right decisions for them, regardless of whether you get paid $1 or $1 million. And I think that gets lost on a lot of people. What is something people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? That I yell and scream and fight all day, and I don't. 
I think a lot of times family law attorneys get a bad rap because of the kind of law we practice. And it's much more fact sensitive than law sensitive. But I draft complex contracts every day of the week. I draft mediation statements and position statements and prenuptial agreements. I'm reading trusts and I'm reading LLC agreements and I'm reading business plans, reading severance agreements. I see a lot. And I think the misconception is that on top of the yelling and screaming that family law attorneys only know about family law when in fact you learn a little about different areas of the world in general just based on the cases that you interact with. What piece of practical advice to our listeners, these are leaders and future leaders in the law looking to follow your lead specifically? Protect your reputation at all costs. No client, no judge, no adversary, no decision is worth ruining your reputation because once you ruin your reputation, it's almost impossible to rebuild it back. What is your favorite self-care practice? I have a Peloton, so I spin. I am a certified Zumba instructor and I did Zumba religiously for years, like would plan dinners and gatherings and stuff around making sure I had my schedule of classes that I would attend. And, you know, with being a mom, it's just not that practical to be out every night of the week. So we have a Peloton in our basement that I try to use as much as I humanly possibly can because I need that time for me. Even if it's only 20 minutes, which is all I could fit in this morning, you know, when I woke up and there was 20 minutes where it was just me and I didn't have to worry about anything else. Who's your favorite Peloton instructor? Ooh, good question. I did Allie Love this morning. I just love her spirit. Like she's just like a feel good. I mean, Cody makes me laugh. I sometimes can't do Cody though when my daughter's downstairs because you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. Um, <laughs> Um, and Robin is just like so inspirational, too. She is. I feel like every lawyer that I've met that also is a Peloton user is just a huge fan of Robin, also because she was a former lawyer and she has all of these insights um, into how she changed her life. I just think it's so fascinating, her whole journey. And she's just she's so motivational, too. Yeah. Maybe one day we can get Robin on this show. <laughs> now, that's a dream. That is a dream. Right? <laughs> Robin, if you're out there and you're listening, we'd love to have you. <laughs> we would. We all would. We would all tune in. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. If there is anyone that wanted to talk to you or ask you more questions about what you do or about your practice, how can they connect with you? So the easiest way is probably email. It's nkobis, K-O-B-I-S, at lindaberry, L-I-N-D-A-B-U-R-Y.com. Feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to talk. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thanks, Sagal, for the opportunity. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.